0: All right, let's find Psalm 67 in our Bibles, Psalm 67 again. For those of you who were not here last week, and that was a number of you with the holiday weekend and such, we started last week Psalm 67, and I made mention of the fact that 11 years ago, these weeks that we're in right now, 11 years ago was, was when I started Uh, my role as the preaching pastor here, and my text for the first three Sundays was Psalm 67. And so I thought with it being Advent season and looking forward to the birth of Christ and the celebration of that, uh, we would use this passage for three Sundays, last week, this week, and next week, to I think really prepare us and remind us of what, Christmas is about, and that is uh, God sending His Son to be the Savior of the world, and that includes people out of every tribe and tongue and nationality. And Christmas is a a missional holiday. The Son of God was sent from the Father on mission to save His people from their sins. You think about the correlation between... um, the Lord Jesus and any missionary you would send out to a foreign land, it is really like that and uh, he, he, he becomes a human of course, he lives among humans and uh, shares in their culture and their experiences with the purpose of bringing salvation to them. This is what it was about. And uh, we learn then at the end of Matthew's gospel that his desire after he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of all those who believe in him, rises again on the third day. And then he commands, right, that his disciples take the gospel to the nations. Go make disciples of all nations. It's It's a missionary holiday. And I want us to be on the same page about this from Psalm 67. And when I started here 11 years ago, I wanted this to be a theme song. So every once in a while, we've got to revive it, put it before us so that we make sure that we are uh, keeping our eye on gospel global proclamation, which is what this psalm is about. It's written by a Jew, of course, many, many centuries before Jesus arrived, probably David. And it was written with the heart that wanted to, yeah, have his own people blessed, but so that through them, God's saving power uh, would become known around the nations. This is his heart. This, this should be our heart as well. Okay. Let's read this passage, and then we will uh, jump into it for the second week. We'll begin with the heading... To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. O oh God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its, its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's just pause and ask his blessing upon this text. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we pray that your spirit would work in us, each one, in such a way that we see the your desired intent from this passage, that we would feel what it wants us to feel, that we would learn from it, that you would use it in our hearts and minds. I pray, as always, that you would... Gift me now and help me. Uh, I depend upon you and your spirit's gifting to teach and preach and overcome all my weaknesses and failures so that your word is not wasted here, but that would be effective in encouraging your people. So be gracious to me now so that your way may be known in this room. And you're saving power among these people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now you'll remember where we began last week, if you were here, if not be a little bit of review here, just by way of reminder that one of the most obvious things about studying this passage is to realize it's a song. It was actually written as a song to be used in the public and corporate worship of the Jewish people. Again, we mentioned it was probably written by David, and you can see right there, it was given to the choir master. They were to take it, they were to sing it to the people, and most likely the people were to be singing along with them. As a matter of fact, it's so important that you, that God wants you to know that this is a song. You need, you need to understand that where, it, where you have that heading in your Bible, where it says, to the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. Understand that if you were to take a Hebrew class, a biblical Hebrew class, and you would get yourself a Hebrew Bible, okay? It's designed a little different than our English Old Testament, but the same content, but a little different. And you would open up to Psalm 67, and you're going to try to work your way through that passage in the Hebrew, you'd probably become confused. Because in your English Bible, verse 1 begins with, may God be gracious to us and bless us. And so you would think that in the Hebrew Bible, it would begin there, verse 1, but it doesn't. In the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 is to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a psalm. It's part of the inspired text. And God wanted us to know that this is a song. Understand that. And it's a song to be sung to and by all his people when they gather together to worship him. Okay? And do you remember the big deal we made about that last week? Those of you who were here... One of the things we said about that, one of the things it means is that he wanted all of his people to be on the same page about this. It wasn't like he wanted some people to have this heart and desire to see, you know, God be glorified throughout the nations, but the rest of us, well, we've got other things we focus on. You see, that's not the way God wanted it, is it? It's to be used in the worship of God's people so that everybody is on the same page. And God inspired it and designed it to be in your Bible, so that when you open up your Bible to Psalm 67, you're always reminded of what your heart orientation to the gospel proclamation around the world is supposed to be. Everybody to be on the same page about this. And then we made mention of the fact and began talking about this fact, about this song, is that it's a prayer It's a prayer directed to God. That's very easy to see, right? It's throughout it. He's addressing it to God. Oh, God, let all the peoples praise you. We want your way to be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. It is a prayer of the songwriter to God that was going to be sung to and by all his people, directing this prayer unto God, right? And the number one implication of that that we drew out is this. When we're praying this to God, we are acknowledging the fact that unless God does this, it won't and cannot happen. Isn't that true? We cannot produce salvation among the nations. We can't produce salvation among our loved ones. We can't produce salvation within our own hearts. This has to come from God. It is a prayer of plea to God for this to happen, you see. Especially in the realm of evangelism, global missions, discipleship, spiritual transformation, our number one activity that we should be about is prayer, okay? The number one thing, not the only thing, we should be doing many, many other things in the realm of ministry and discipleship and missions and evangelism. We're not just going to sit here and pray, okay? We're, we, we're going to do other things, but the number one activity that the church can be involved in in which all of us can be involved in is praying for these things. When you're trying to witness to somebody... You're trying to share the gospel with somebody. Understand, again, friends, it's not your creativity and presentation that's all of a sudden going to make this person come to spiritual life and belief. Gospel evangelism is not a sales pitch. It's a proclamation of the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because it must be accompanied with the power of God. So, the number one activity in anything like that that we can be doing as a church is praying to God. You know, we mentioned this last week. Paul was a missionary, the, really the first global missionary, taking that gospel to people who've never heard it, going into these places, always starting with Jewish people who hadn't heard about Jesus, and working his way out into the city, into the general uh, Gentile population. And Luke, of course, records Paul's missionary endeavors in the book of Acts. And he is very careful to always show that it is God, it is God's work when when there is success in Paul's missionary endeavors. One illustration of that, I want to show you, it's in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It's the account of this woman Lydia. Okay? Acts 16, 14. One who heard us, and this is Luke recording, he was with Paul at the time, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, so she was part of the Old Testament worship of God, but hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus. Now, let me ask this question, as Paul, if you know Paul's history, and he would go Share the gospel with Jewish people and you go into synagogues. Was the gospel always received and accepted with joy? No. As a matter of fact, they were his number one enemy more than the Romans, than the Gentiles. It's from the Jewish people. The vast majority rejected Paul and persecuted him for what he was presenting. Now listen to this. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did Lydia pay attention to Paul when so many others in her same position, quote-unquote, worshippers of God in the old covenant community, either Gentile converts or Jewish people, but they reject it. What made the difference? According to Luke, the physician slash theologian. Luke is showing you the difference is that the Lord prepared her heart. He actually did something in her heart that moved her to hear the gospel and then the gospel become the power of salvation unto her. Friends, I would like to argue that that's how it works for every single person there is a sovereign work of god that must happen in the heart if the person's going to say be saved and believe but do you see the implication of that if we are sending people out if we are supporting missionaries and they're going to the taramara people the taramara people then need the floyds to bring them the gospel cuz no one's saved apart from the gospel but the Taramara people need the Lord to work in their hearts and prepare that soil just like Jesus taught. So when the word is sown, it bears fruit, you see. It means the number one thing we can be doing in any of this realm is praying. And when we are thinking about gospel global expansion, I mean, this auditorium is filled with really good people. Gifted people, talented people, but we don't have the ability to accomplish what we're praying here. And so we need God to do this through us. The psalmist understood that. So the number one activity we're about is prayer. Can I just say this before I move on from that? Sometimes God brings us into seasons of life where all of our other we we were able to do some ministries and be involved physically in things or working with people and different things we were able to be busy really in gospel ministry endeavors and all of a sudden that can we can just feel like God just put us on a shelf we can't do Anything of what we used to do, that happens in seasons. Sometimes as people age, it's just by necessity. They can't do the same things that they used to do. It can be so disheartening and discouraging. I hear believers talk about this all the time. It just is discouraging. I understand that. But also understand in that season, the number one thing you can be doing, and really should have been the number one thing you were always doing, God willing it was, and that is prayer. Prayer. And to believe, to believe, I mean really believe that as you're praying, God is listening and he's going to answer. You may never see it happen. You may be praying for a people group. You've, you never meet anyone from the people group until in heaven. And I have a feeling that what God will do is allow you to see the answer to your prayers, you see. It's the number one thing we can be doing. As a matter of fact, James has this little phrase in James 5, verse 16, I think is so important to keep in mind all the time. The prayer of a righteous person, listen to this, it has great power as it is working. Is your prayer working? Yes. And it's not only working, but it's working with great power. You just might not see it yet. Okay. We have to believe that. Prayer is such an act of faith Because when we want to see something happen, or we want to see something done, we usually want to just do it. We want it to happen right now. So prayer feels so passive, like I'm not doing anything here, but that's just contrary to what the Bible teaches. Our prayers are heard, and they are answered according to the will of God and in the timing of God. Prayer works, and it's effective, okay? But now notice this about the psalm. And the prayer that he's putting forth here. Just in general, notice this. This is a very passionate prayer. When you read through some of the things he's saying... He's pleading with, let the peoples praise you, oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. There's a passion happening here in this man's heart, is there not? We might say something like this. We'll use terminology like this sometimes. Wow, that person's really on fire for God. Like in their soul, there's a burning passion for God and his glory, and in this psalm, he's so passionate about God's glory that he wants it to flow from God through them to the rest of the world. He's not, even, he's not content with the fact that just he and some in Israel are worshipers of God and find their joy in God. And are praising God. That's not enough for him. He's not content with that. He's so passionate about God. He wants to see those who do not worship God now become worshipers of God. Why? Because he knows God's worthy of that worship. And it brings glory to the God he loves and worships, you see. He's on fire for God. It's a passionate, zealous prayer and song. He wants to see people worship God because he loves God. And he loves seeing people worship God. You remember back in Romans when we, of course you do, hasn't been that long, has it? But Romans 1 through 3, and we spent our time walking through that, and that was just such a hard passage to go through because week upon week, it's just talking about the sin of human beings. And do you remember what the number, really the core issue was? The core issue was not the individual sins that they were committing. That wasn't the issue. The core issue is found in Romans 1, verses 21 to 23, and I have a slide for that. Remember this? For although they, that is the nations, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now listen to this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory... Of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they knew God and have a knowledge of God. That's how we're all born. By the way, remember, we made this case. This is all of us. They knew God, but they don't want God. They don't honor Him. They don't give thanks to Him. They suppress the truth about them in their own unrighteousness. And they turn to the things He made... And make those the object of their glory and worship. They become idolaters. It's so bad that Paul is talking about the fact that there are birds and animals and reptiles, and they would take uh, uh, wood and stone and make images of these reptiles and worship them instead of God. This is what the human heart would rather have. We don't want you, God. We want sin and stuff. And how offensive that is to God. But the proper way to read that, I think in light of Psalm 67, is this, friends. We look at that condition of human beings. We look at the same thing happening right now. Some places, Western countries, you know, idolatry is much more sophisticated. I don't know too many people worshiping statues of reptiles anymore in our neck of the woods, so to speak. But we have many other things that God has created and we would rather have them than God, right? But our heart orientation is to look at that and what should really agitate us, I mean really agitate, this is what should be the agitation here, is that our God isn't receiving the glory due His name. And our heart should be that Psalm 67, that these people who are now worshiping stuff turn from that, and see the glory of God and worship Him, okay? Paul, again, is that missionary in Acts chapter 17, 16. says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, listen, his spirit was provoked within him, and as he saw that the city was full of idols. And he wanted to see them come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ, not just to save them from hell, though that's a wonderful thing, but to turn them from non-worshippers of God to worshipers of God. And friends, since, the, since this psalm was given to all people of God and it is a psalm expressing the, expressing the passionate zeal that this writer has for the glory of God and wanting to see that glory spread, I think that we could be safe in saying this, that God wants all his people to have this heart, right? To share this zeal for his glory and to see that glory spread among the nations. That we're passionate about God. Would that not be safe to say that God has put this forth for all his people to be on the same page about this? I want you to feel like this. In other words, this psalm writer is being put forward as an example here of how we all should feel about God. The glory and wanting to see that glory go to the nations. Now what I want to do next week we're going to kind of pick up right there and move through the rest of the psalm, but I want to address this morning a potential problem that we may encounter when we read this psalm, and when you hear this message, and you hear me saying, we should all feel like this, This passion for God should be burning within us that we could write our own song about this and that we're praying with this passion to see this glory spread throughout the nations. There is an underlying potential problem that isn't in the psalm, but I want to address it, okay? And that problem that we could encounter in our own way of thinking as we approach this text in our own hearts is this. We see how we're supposed to feel We see the passion we're supposed to have for God, but we don't always feel that way, do we? We know how we're supposed to feel about God's glory. It tells us. (laughs) But we encounter times, Christian, in our life, seasons, And for some, this is far worse than others. Entire seasons where when it comes to God in His glory, there's very little feeling at all. And so when you hear a sermon like this, and I'm addressing those of you who are in here who could be in that season right now or have been, your passion, your zeal for God may be at a time you were on fire and through maybe circumstances or other things or whatever it could be, that zeal has waned. You hearing a message about how you're supposed to feel is like me taking this hard bound Bible and beating you over the head with it. I don't have one of those sissy leather bound. This is a hard cover. If I if I hit you with this, you're gonna know you got hit. And that doesn't do anyone any good. And the first thing I want to say to you, if you're in that situation or you find yourself in it, and I mean your soul is not expanded with the glory of God, I want to say this to you first. I want to relieve you. You are not alone in that. That this is a common experience and always has been among the people of God. They go through seasons like this where their soul is dry and cold. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 10:13 is helpful in this way. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, that is not common to human beings. This is a human problem in a fallen world. Won't always be like this. There's coming a day when you're in glory, you'll never experience it. This would be a waste of time even talking about this in glory, but now this is common to human people, to Christian people. And this problem is so common, listen to this, this problem is so common that just as God inspired Psalm 67 to show us how we should feel and give us words when we do feel that way and try to revive our souls in that about his passion for his glory, he also inspired psalms and songs to be read by his people that are where where the author was in the complete opposite state. And there's many of these throughout the Psalms. But I want to show you one. Turn to Psalm 42. If you're in that position, and maybe you've been in that position for days, weeks, months, and even years, be encouraged that you're not alone. Be encouraged that God knew about this and in his gracious love has given you Psalms that, you're gonna, that will resonate with you when you read it. You know how the author's feeling. Notice in Psalm 42 what would be verse 1 in our Hebrew Bible. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. A maskil, according to a little footnote, right, is just a, probably a musical or liturgical term, something to do with music. They don't fully know, but we know that's what it was. But who was this directed to? Choir master. Hey, we're in the same situation we were back in Psalm 67, right? He's like, hey, man, I'm on fire for God, and I want everybody else to be on fire for God. Here's a psalm. Let's sing about it. But in Psalm 42, it's a little different, isn't it? Now listen to these words. Let's just walk through some of these verses. As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O oh God. At the risk of offending somebody in here, if you've ever sung the melody with this song, do you know any? As the deer panteth for... Okay, all right, all right. If you like the song, keep liking it. But the melody doesn't match what's happening here. It's not pleasant. As a deer... Listen, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's the imagery of a deer, a wild animal, in a time of drought. He's not just thirsty, he's in trouble. If he doesn't get something to drink, he's going to die This is picturing he's he was sitting there thinking what words right now what illustration could i give to describe what's going on in my soul in relation to god it's like a dying animal searching desperately for water when shall i come and appear before god my soul is thirsting for him, for the living God. You ever felt that way? This seems like a... And for some that deal with chronic depressions, listen, you have to understand, this is like a desperate and life-threatening situation in the, in the person's soul. Is why whenever, whenever you're encountering somebody, Christian, who is walking through depression or seasons like this, you must be patient with them and gracious and loving and kind. They don't want to feel this way. They want to find the water and it feels, well, it feels life-threatening. My tears, verse 3, have been my food day and night. Oh, they say to me all the day long, listen to this, where is your God. His tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's overwhelming sorrow. Day, night, doesn't matter. This is my condition continuously. Maybe he can put on a happy face when he needs to, when he goes to the office or comes to church, but this is really the state of his soul or her soul, and what they're feeling. And where is your God? If you were right with God, would this be happening to you? I mean, aren't God's people to be joyful and jubilant and triumphant? What's wrong with you? Listen to this in verse 4. He's doing something here, so take note of that and take counsel from it. What's he doing? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. In other words, it hasn't always been this way. I haven't always felt this way. This hasn't been every season of my life. I remember many times going in and praising God and worshiping God and sitting in my devotional time and loving what I'm reading and just pouring out prayers to God. I remember that. And so he counsels himself with a question. Verse 5 Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he preaches to himself, doesn't he? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, it isn't going to be like this forever and I know it. I know it because I know Jesus Christ. He's going to bring me through this. This is not my forever experience, you see. Preach to yourself hope in God. Remember in Romans what we learned about hope? It is not wishful thinking. It's not, well, I hope in God that one day I'm gonna praise him again and one day he's gonna enlarge my heart and one day he's gonna let me see his glory again and feel it and experience. He's saying, no, soul, hope in God now. You will again praise him. He is your God and your salvation. My soul is cast down within me Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. It's the picture of one that is distanced from the presence of God in Jerusalem and the tabernacle worship. He's going to remember God. But this is what it feels like. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In these times, connecting it to God's sovereign and providential hand is critical God in his sovereignty is, has designed this season for you now. It's not out of nowhere and even if the devil is involved and we can, we can admit that he is involved in different ways, he can't do anything, not one little thing apart from God's sovereign hand over you. But he feels as though this is coming from God in such an extent that his breakers and his waves have gone over him. You ever stood like on the cliff over like a little, uh, the ocean, you know, where it just comes up and it's not like a, a nice beach that you sit on and relax, but it's crashing. The waves are just crashing against the rocks as they're breaking and you've thought to yourself, man, imagine if I fell into this. How terrifying that would be and it would be deadly, right? Because it'd be so overwhelming. You can't control yourself. You're not gonna be able to swim. You're gonna drown. That's what it feels like in his soul right now. But by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to God, to the God of my life. You see what he's recounting here and why I love this is because even through all of that, his soul is feeling this intense sorrow and distance from God. God is sending glimmers of his love here and there and he's aware of the fact that God's steadfast love is covering him. His steadfast love is with him. Maybe if you're in this room and you're walking through a season like that, friends, this message, this message is God's steadfast love to you. Okay? (coughs) Feel that. I say to God, and now look what he does. He's honest with God, is he not? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You could fix this and you're not. Have you forgotten me? Why does this continue? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's like his condition is such that even his enemies are just waiting now. They're seeing it. They're seeing this person fold in upon himself, questioning, "Where, where is your God? You know, what's interesting, friends, is that Paul, when he talks about our enemies in the New Testament, they are not physical adversaries, are they? He says this in Ephesians six eleven and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, who is our primary taunter? Who is our primary enemy? And what is his primary question when you're going through that? Where is your God? What a question. It can lead to massive amounts of doubt because actually in times of severe despair, the answer to that is, that's a good question. Where is my God right now? We must understand that this is coming from the devil. That question And that's why it's so important in verse 11, the way he ends, isn't it? Once again, he asks himself this question, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he preaches to himself once again, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You tell that to yourself, you see. In these times, you wait and you hope And you trust and you lament and you read these prayers and you say your own prayers to God knowing that he will deliver you out of this when it is time. He will restore you, Christian. You will feel the countenance and joy of his love again. You will feel that passion for his glory once again. And you know what you primarily need? Now turn back to Psalm 67. Some of you, if you're in that position, you don't need to go past verse 1 at this point. You know what you need when you're feeling like that? You need grace. When you're in that position and your soul feels like that dying deer in the wilderness, what you need is grace from God. That's why we start with verse 1. Look at it. You pray this right now. Some of you in that position, you just pray this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Or you read it this way. God, be gracious to me. Be gracious now to me. Bless me. Make your face shine upon me. May I feel that smiling countenance of yours upon me again that infiltrates my soul in this time. Friends, understand that in Jesus Christ, Remember what we learned in Romans 1. Here is, here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think he is an unfamiliar with the absolute depths of, dis, of despondency, discouragement, sorrow, he was named the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You need to remember he's the one who knew what it was to weep Isaiah fifty three to have his soul crushed. He was the one that from the cross prayed. Remember, my God, my God, now why have you forsaken me? These are echoes, really, of the Lord Jesus Christ as He went to the cross, paid for all of your sins, so that that what you're experiencing right now, that feeling of separation from God, though it's not reality, but the feeling of it, that you can know this is not my forever feeling. And even if this killed me, guess what? I go into his presence forever to never, ever suffer again, you see. Look to the Lord and look to his word. The psalmist says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. This is how he does it, friends, right here. In his word, reviving our souls. You just spend time praying for grace, don't you worry yet about that gospel going to the nation. Sometimes we need to be in a time when we need the gospel to come to us first. This is why he begins with that. We gotta feel the grace and the blessing first and then it will flow through us to the gospel. We'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father, I just ask for every person in this room, you do know the mind and heart of each one. You do encourage the downcast We know that you are near to the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. Let people experience that, maybe for the first time. You're uplifting joy and love and smiling countenance upon this. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.